Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. I always miss when Phil is, is gone. I always miss him being here because I feel a little bit like a one-man band sometimes, I, although I was able to get some help from Bay this morning with the reading. Thank you, Bay, for that. It's always good when we have m- multiple men involved in the worship of uh, our Lord. Well, thank you. And I want to also thank uh, James and Sophie for helping out this morning with playing and singing. It's a wonderful time. I'm always incredibly thankful to worship uh, with the body of Christ. I'm always encouraged by uh, our time of worship and song. At, at Grace Bible Church, we deliberately choose songs. If you haven't picked up on this, we deliberately choose songs which have rich doctrine. In other words, we love to sing the doctrine of our Lord. And we understand, as I said earlier, as I prayed, we understand that when you arrive on Sunday morning, you may are probably, maybe, still burdened by the worries of the world. And singing together helps join us together as one before the throne of God. It, it readies our heart to receive the Word of God. Well, today we're continuing our series we've called Family Matters. Today we are studying the world of work. Now, you might ask how that comes together with family matters, but uh, most of us work a full-time job during the week. And even if you're not working outside the home, you still work. Work, that is, work is a necessary part of life in our world. In the words of Elizabeth Elliot, work is a blessing. God has so arranged the world that work is necessary and gives us hands and strength to do it. The enjoyment of leisure would be nothing if we had only leisure. It is the joy of work well done that enables us to enjoy our rest, just as the experiences of hunger and thirst make food and drink such pleasures, end quote. Fyodor Dostoevsky says, Deprived of meaningful work, men and women lose their reason for existence. He says... In the negative, they go stark, raving mad, end quote. You get the picture. Work is important. You know, did you know that God actually made work before the fall? Uh, work was part of God's perfect creation. In Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. It amazes me, then, that even to think that God himself never ceases to work. He created the world and actively sustained, sustained it from the beginning. Our Lord Jesus affirmed this truth in John 5, 17, when he said, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. After the fall, God cursed man's work, saying, By the sweat of your brow you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. From that point forward, work was no longer easy for us. Even in the best of situations, work is very difficult, is it not? Technology, as you know, has made the physical part of our work much easier. Did you realize or did you know that we work little more than, a little more than half as much as the average U.S. worker in 1850? Think about that. Think about how much more leisure time we have. We work less... But our work still produces stress, does it not? Therefore, our work still remains difficult, albeit in a different way. 
Even with all our technological advances, we still toil. I'm sure that most of you recognize the difficulty of your work. Some of of you may even fully dislike your work. We've certainly been around folks who hate their jobs, have we not, and hate their boss. They do everything they can do to undermine their authority. All you have to do is step foot into a fast food restaurant to see those things. Am I not telling the truth? I can tell you people's attitude toward work has proceeded from bad to worse over the last 20 years. As Christians, when we consider our current culture, we need to ask some questions. How are we to respond to our work? Especially when our co-workers are unbelieving. Especially, maybe even our boss is unbelieving. Probably is. Furthermore, how are we to respond to him or her? What if he or she is an unbeliever? But what if they're a believer? How do, we, how do we respond to them, and how do we do our work well? Well, I believe the Apostle Paul will answer these questions and more as we study the next few verses in Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. So let's dive into the text. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into the text. Our gracious Lord, we pray that you bless this time, this morning of preaching, You'd bless the hearer, that you would strengthen the preacher this morning. May he say all that you would have him say, and nothing that he would say on his own. In Christ's name, amen. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Paul writes, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord, and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Beloved, I find economics fascinating. In the words of Lionel Robbins, economics is the allocation of scarce means that have alternative uses. Using this definition, human labor is a scarce means because we are a finite creature who are limited by our choices. In other words, we have to make choices every day between one thing or another. Lionel Robbins goes on to say, the material means of achieving ends are limited. We have been turned out of paradise. We have neither eternal life nor unlimited means of of gratification. Everywhere we turn, we choose, if we choose one thing, we must relinquish others which in different circumstances we wish not to have relinquished. Scarcity means to satisfy ends of varying importance is an almost universal condition of human behavior. Ultimately, what he's saying is, is we have to make choices. We have to make choices with what we have. We have to make choices with our time. We have choices to make, and in making those choices, we have to give up certain things. 
As an example, we make the choice not to mow our yard because we want to use our time to work elsewhere. Or we may choose to delegate that task because our time can be used in other ways. As Christians, we should understand human behavior through a biblical lens. Sometimes we don't wash the dishes because we would rather watch TV. The Bible calls this laziness if it's a pattern. On a larger scale, man has to manage other people's labor. In that case, the question has always been, how do we motivate others to work efficiently and on the right things? In our country, in the United States, in the Western world, the profit motive motivates us to work. Applied in the correct way, the profit motive encourages us to work harder and more efficiently. If a worker recognizes a pay increase with improved productivity, they are more likely to find ways of producing more. If an owner realizes a greater profit when they invest in people and technology, they're more likely to make those future, future investments. And the inverse is true as well, is it not? If an owner pockets the profits and does not invest in his people through raises and bonuses, the workers won't work as hard. Ultimately, they'll leave and find an owner willing to invest more in them. As such, the profit motive leads to an economy which encourages good choice-based choices regarding our resources. Historically, under communist rule, the government allocates labor and production as the way to motivate humans to work. This model leads to a less than, less, less than ideal outcomes because it doesn't account for human behavior. Let me give you an example. According to Thomas Sowell, in the Soviet Union, under communist rule, there was a fa fascination with economies of scale. In layman, layman terms, in layman terms, they thought bigger was always better. Their industrial and agricultural enterprises were the largest in the world. The average Soviet farm, just to put it in perspective, was 10 times the size of the average American farm and employed 10 times as many workers. But these farms were actually very inefficient. As an example from the Office of Management and Budget uh, illustrates, in common fields, fleets of tractors would fan out to begin the plowing. Plant fulfillment was calculated based on the area that they worked. Therefore, it was the driver's advantage to cover as much ground as possible. So, they started by cutting deep furrows at the edge of the fields. But as they moved deeper into the fields, they began to lift the plow and race the tractor along, making the rows progressively shallower. The first fur furrows were 9 to 10 inches deep, but at the center of the field, the tractor drivers were certain, where tractor drivers were certain no one would check on them, the furrows were as little as 2 inches deep. Now, you don't have to be told what happened. It's, the, the crops didn't grow properly. I mean, there was crops on the edges, but the, the produce wasn't there. And that, in this case, the govern, government monitors inspected the fields and paid the workers based on the area plowed. There were too few monitors to check the fields, so therefore, human nature being what it is, sinful, the workers increased their pay through shortcuts. See, they understood that they, could, they could, were going to be more easily monitored at the edges of the field. So they adjusted the quality accord, accordingly. As you can see then, human behavior has an outsized impact on the results. Farms in U the U.S. are much smaller, yet historically yield far larger and higher produce than Soviet farms. And it's because of human behavior. It's because of human behavior, and it's because of the motivation to work. In the Apostle Paul's day, 
there was yet another way to motivate humans to work. It's called slavery. Now, as you know, we're continuing our study in Ephesians, and today we've made it to chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Now, Paul, in this passage, he addresses slaves and masters. Now, we must recognize that Paul speaks to the institution of work through the lens of the Roman system of slavery. Therefore, we're going to take the time to study that historical institution, and we need to apply, then, the principles to our culture of work. You see, human behavior, human behavior, human nature has not changed. By the way, by way of reminder, that is, Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians to encourage the church to a greater faithfulness. In chapters 1 through 3, he reminded the church of the greatness of their salvation in Christ. Based on those glorious truths that he taught them in the first three chapters, he exhorted the church to walk the worthy walk. And as part of this worthy walk, he called them to walk in wisdom, being filled with the Spirit. Now, being filled with the Spirit impacts our lives and our relationships. Spirit-filled wives lovingly submit to their husbands' leading. Spirit-filled husbands love their wives sacrificially. Spirit-filled children obey and honor their parents. Spirit-filled fathers bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And spirit-filled slaves obey their masters. Now, let's see what he addresses, how he addresses believing slaves. Now, in these verses, Paul gives two clear directives to slaves, or we might say modern-day employees. You are first to be subject to your earthly masters. Look at our text in 6.5. Paul writes, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Now, before we dive into Paul's instructions, I think we should define what it meant to be a slave in Roman times. Now, first I think I need to address slavery in America, because that's what we generally think about. In our culture, when we think of slavery, most of us think about southern slavery in the 18th and 19th centuries. Now, as you probably know, most slaves in the, in the U.S. were African in origin. As such, they were enslaved mainly on the basis of their origin or their skin color. You see, they weren't slaves by choice. Many had been ripped from their native lands, Others were born to enslaved parents, therefore they had not had any taste of freedom. Now, Mosaic law specifically condemned man-stealing. In Exodus 21.16 it says, He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he's found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. You see, God took it seriously, takes it seriously, when we kidnap and steal. And that's exactly what was going on in the African slave trade. In 1 Timothy 1.10 Paul included man-stealers <clears throat> as a sin of the lawless and rebellious. Now, this certainly condemned the African slave trade, as I've said, which thrived until its abolition, led by men like William Wilberforce, who, by the way, was a Christian. Whether they became slaves through trade or born into slavery, slaves in the South had no rights except for what their masters granted. And as you know, many masters were evil in their actions towards slaves. They treated them like mere pack animals. Some, some, though, were generally benevolent, especially for the ones who lived in the home. 
and they treated their slaves humanely. Even so, even so, they were wrong to keep another man as property with little or no ability to attain freedom. And I want to, I want to be clear that that is a distinction that we need to understand. Unfortunately, the more benevolent slave owners were complicit in keeping the system of slavery alive in the United States. Sadly, even some Christians owned slaves. A few years ago, a firestorm ignited over Jonathan Edwards' possession of slaves. It is difficult for us to wrap our head around how someone so brilliant and useful to the kingdom could also participate in the evil of slavery. Now, we can't, I won't, I can't, we can't excuse Edwards' ownership of slaves. I don't think we should try to justify owning another human being made in the image of God. But, but we shouldn't be too quick to judge. Just like Abraham and Moses and David, who did, all did sinful things, we should recognize that even believers can do fleshly things. Some of you may be aware of John Piper's love for Edwards. He, he was taken by Edwards early in his, early in his life. And Edwards was his hero in the faith, if you will. Uh, for a period of time, Ed, uh, Piper evidently didn't know that Edwards owned slaves. And, and it, as you might imagine, it was heartbreaking for him to find out that this was the truth. But he, had, he gives five responses to this, which I think we should apply in all, in all these cases. He says, first, don't idolize any man but Jesus. Second, uh, study a man's work critically, understanding that he may have blind spots. Third, marvel at God's grace in the lives of fallible men, including, by the way, us, including you and I. Actively, number four, actively seek blind spots in your own sanctification. Number five, let others, other men's failures fuel your prayer life, lest you fail too. Now, I would add, as tragic as Edward's ownership of slaves is or seems, we can't forget that, that God used Jonathan Edwards, specifically used Jonathan Edwards, and other Christians to, to abolish slavery. Uh, Harry Stout says this, It was in the logic of Edward's ethics and epistemology that seeds of a unique anti-slavery ideology would be planted most notably through Jonathan Edwards, Jr. and his most renowned, in, renowned intellectual heir, Samuel ha ha Hopkins. Now, Samuel Hopkins, excuse me, Samuel Hopkins himself held domestic slaves. He actually owned some, but he was one of the first ministers to denounce the institution of slaveries, slavery. Jonathan Edwards, Jr., Princeton's third president, strongly opposed slavery throughout his life and ministry. He was a leading anti-slavery activist in the 18th century. Truly, what we have to understand is, is, as bad as it is that we had Christians who owned slaves, that Christians themselves were on the forefront of the battle against slavery. John, John Newton, who wrote the beloved hymn Amazing Grace, was a slave ship captain. A slave ship captain prior to his conversion. And after his conversion, he became a, a pastor and a hymn writer. He also influenced abolitionists, including, as I mentioned earlier, William Wilberforce. Wilberforce was a member of Parliament and a leading abolitionist. He fought for many years, 
uh, several years to improve the, the living conditions of African slaves and to end the slave trade within the British Empire. Early in his battle against slavery, Wilberforce suffered a great defeat in the Parliament, and he became almost, he almost died because of it, he, and he almost gave up public life. But Newton, John Newton, encouraged him to continue to fight, saying in part, listen to this, one may not be able to calculate all the advantages that may result from your service in public life. The example and even the presence of a consistent character may have a powerful, though unobserved, effect on others. You are in a place where many know him not and can show them the genuine fruits of the religion you are known to profess, end quote. In spring of 1807, 11 years after that initial defeat, the slave trade was, uh, was legally abolished in the British Empire. John Newton actually died the same year in 1807, but not before hearing the news that his friend Wilberforce had finally won the war against the slave trade. As for slavery in the United States, it's interesting to note that the industrial north defeated the agricultural south. The point is, is that slave trade, the slave trade ended because it didn't make sense economically. And it, did, it didn't. But ultimately, ultimately, it was won because of the fight of Christians. Christians who loved Christ, who understood that slavery was an evil. Now, I think I should point out that slavery in some form has existed from the fall of man. Enslavement is a result of living in a sin-fallen world. Even today, even today, there are countries which condone slavery. The U.S. State Department notes that, that sex trafficking and child sex trafficking thrives today. It is believed that some missing children have been kidnapped and, and taken for the purpose of prostitution, for sex trafficking. And we should note that Jesus and the apostles, though, in his day, never sought to end physical slavery during their day. Jesus, when he was here, focused on a different type of enslavement, our enslavement to sin, from which he frees us. In Paul's words in Romans 6.17, he says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to, which, to that form of teaching to which you were committed. You see, Christianity doesn't promise release from your present circumstances. But it does give you the power to endure those situations. The, James wrote to his, reader, to, his, to, his, uh, to his readers, he wrote this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, James never says, You will be delivered from your present situation. He says, though, that your trials and difficulties will help sanctify you and make you more like Christ. Now, just to be clear, James also exhorts true believers to come to the aid of the downtrodden and needy. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You see, God expects His people to come to the aid of the oppressed. Therefore, John Newton and William Wilberforce and Edwards Jr. they were right to fight for the justice for, for they were right to fight for justice for the slaves in America and the British Empire. And in today's world, we're right, and we should be fighting against the, sl the slavery that exists today. 
we're also right to fight against the murder of babies in the womb. Now here in Ephesians 6.5, Paul addresses slaves in the Roman Empire. Now, I went through all that because I wanted to show you that slavery in Paul's day had some crucial or critical differences from slavery in North America. In the Roman Empire, many became slaves due to debt or capture in war. Unlike slavery in America, slaves were from various nations and backgrounds. Slaves could actually sell themselves into slavery with the knowledge that they could actually later regain their freedom. They sold themselves under contract, which which meant that they had a contractual agreement on the time served as a slave. Slaves slaves had their rights restricted. They, They could not represent themselves in legal matters. They were subject to the seizure of their property, and they couldn't work to earn their living for themselves, and their treatment fully depended upon their masters. Now, as with any situation in the Roman Empire, there were good masters and there were harsh ones. Now, some slaves, or some folks, even sold themselves into slavery to, to improve their living conditions or to improve their, their, their future. They might become slaves to secure certain jobs, to climb the social ladder, and to make their lives easier. As a, as a slave, their, their master then was, was responsible to care for them. And in some cases, masters even gave their slaves training and education. They, they even became tutors of their master's children. The Greek, the Greek uh, philosopher Epictetus was a former slave who reported that his master provided him with food, clothes, shelter, and medical care. Now, according to some estimates, slaves co- constituted in the Roman Empire at least one-third of the population. In Paul's day, slavery, there, there may have been as many slaves in the labor market as there were freemen. Slaves worked in a variety of capacities, including agriculture, mining, cooks, bakers. Some were even accountants, doctors, musicians, business professionals. We should address slavery from Paul's perspective then. So there were slaves in the Roman Empire, but how did Paul think of them? Well, first he believed that that both slaves and masters were free in Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 7.22. He says, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. But he saw both slaves and masters as free in Christ. He also taught that both slaves and masters are equal in Christ. 1 Timothy 6.2. It says, Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren. But we must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Now he also was concerned that both slaves and masters carry out their responsibilities as unto Christ. In Colossians 3.23, he says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. And Paul was also mainly interested in the slave and master's eternity with Christ. He wasn't as concerned about their temporal situation. He was mostly concerned about, his, about their eternal situation. In Romans 8.18, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But lastly, he told slaves to come, become free if they, uh, if they could do so. In 1 Corinthians 7.21 it says, Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. 
But if you are able to also become free, rather do that. Now, Paul's letter to Philemon demonstrate his, demonstrates his attitude towards slavery. Onesimus was a slave who had apparently stolen some money from Philemon, his master. He had also fled to Rome where he met with Paul who had led him to salvation. Now, subsequent to that, Paul also led Philemon to Christ. So he led the master and the slave to Christ. Now, after Onesimus was saved, Paul sent him back to Philemon, his earthly master. And he pleaded with Philemon to receive him back as a fellow brother in Christ. Now listen to Paul's plea. He begged for Philemon to receive Onesimus back, no longer as a slave. This is Philemon 16, or 116. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. A beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You see, Paul understood Onesimus' obligation to his master. He had broken the law by stealing and running away. Paul even offered restitution on his behalf to make things right. But we see here Paul's heart for both the slave and the master. And it's that heart that Paul had for both the slave and the master, it's that heart that led Paul to directly address believing slaves at Ephesus. Now look back at your text. Okay, look back at your text. It says, slaves, be obedient. Be obedient. The word translated be obedient means to do what one says or carry out their orders. Uh, just, for, just by way of comparison, Paul used the same word in six one to address the children. He exhorted the slaves to be obedient to their earthly masters. Literally, they were to obey their masters according to the flesh. According, that's how the NASB translates it. The context indicates that Paul is referring uh, to the kind of masters that they had. It's their earthly masters. It's their human masters. Paul's exhortation fits with what we've seen with his teaching concerning slaves and masters. Now you should notice that he, he do, doesn't make any exceptions here. He, he calls for obedience of, of the slave without regard for whether the masters are good or not. At this point... Then Paul goes on to describe how they're to submit. He said another way, he describes the right attitude for submission. They are to submit with fear and trembling. That's what he says in the next phrase. So we, to obey, the slaves are to obey their masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. He says to be obedient and to fear. Now, this command is interesting because many masters, as you might expect, would, rule, would have ruled with fear. Paul even mentions it in verse 9. He tells the masters to give up threatening. Uh, they controlled their slaves with fear. <clears throat> One former slave who may have been educated in Italy, in Italy and was a freedman of Augustus, he stated that, that the slaves were actually punished in his situation. The slaves were punished for almost any offense. So... Fear was, for some slaves, the order of the day when working for his master. Yet Paul calls for the believer, believing slaves to have a different kind of fear, a, a different kind of fear, and, and a different object of their fear. He called for them to have a reverential, honoring type of fear. Uh, the Lord Jesus, for the Lord Jesus, not, not for the master, but for the Lord Jesus as the object of our fear. And Ephesians 5.21, he told the 
Ephesian church to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And he's applying that, that truth, that call uh, from Ephesians 5.21 here in Ephesians 6.5. All believers are to submit to one another in the fear of Christ, which is only accomplished in what? In the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this word translated trembling means to quiver or shake with fear. This is a fear so great that it can't, cannot be hidden or concealed. <clears throat> now, back in Ephesians 4.24, Paul told the church to put on the new self, which has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. And in 4.26, he says this. He, quotes, he actually quotes Psalm 4.4, which says, Tremble, tremble, and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Brethren, when our earthly bosses rule in fear and when they treat us poorly, we are to respond in a reverent fear and a reverent fear and, and trembling, not before the boss, but before the Lord. We are to be still upon our bed and meditate on God's goodness no matter our situation. David Livingston puts it simply, Fear God and work hard. Fear God and work hard. This leads us to the second way slaves, and, and by extension, we should obey. We should obey in sincerity. We should obey in, a, in sincerity. The word translated sincerity has the idea of singleness or straightness. It came to mean speaking with a hidden meaning or agenda. If Paul is exhorting the slaves to obey in truth. Uh, we... We've all seen that insolent teenager, right, who sneers at, at, the, at her parents while she's, doing, while she's doing the chores. She's doing them. She's, she's obeying, but she's sneering, and she doesn't want to do them. When I was younger, I could do some of my best work when I was angry enough to use it as motivation. But Paul says we're not to do that. We're not to do that. And, and, and again, in the, the words of the psalmist, we are to tremble, yet do not sin. According to Harold Honer, the commentator on Ephesians says, the <clears throat> slaves were to obey their human masters in the singleness or sincerity of their hearts without being duplicitous in their disposition or actions. They are not to pretend to labor while actually loitering. They should give undivided attention and effort to the task at hand, end quote. In the, in the words of one commentator, our obedience is not to be hypocritical, are superficial, but genuine and thorough. Ultimately, we are to obey our, our earthly masters. Look at your text. As to Christ, we, we are to have a singleness of devotion which matches our devotion to our Lord Jesus. We do this because of our devotion to Him. Paul, Paul again, makes no distinction between believing and unbelieving masters. We do this even though our boss, whether believing or unbelieving, may not deserve it. I mean, even if he doesn't deserve it, even if she doesn't deserve it, uh, we are still called to obey, and we're called to obey as to Christ. But there's yet another ditch to avoid. Another ditch to avoid. Look back at your text. We're to do so without man-pleasing. And you see, I mean, there's the, there's the insolent slave who does his work anyway, but then there's a, now there's, on the other hand, the man-pleasing slave. Look back at your text in 6.6. Not by way of eye service as man-pleasers or men-pleasers. Paul covers it all, does he not? 
the, the idea of eye service is to serve with a view to impressing someone with our outward appearance. This is the guy who does everything right, but only does it to impress others, especially those who can help him. Uh, th- this word conveys the idea of that the goal of performance is strictly to impress the master. Therefore, they leave, they leave undone anything that would not be seen by him. Thinking back to my introduction to this sermon, the tractor drivers plowed the outer parts of the field correctly, but they did this because they knew that government, the government monitors wouldn't go into the field center to check the plow's depth. They were doing what they were doing only to please the monitor in order to make more money. Paul says don't do that. Paul says don't do that. This is no more than man-pleasing, which is not pleasing to God. The tractor drivers work to please the monitors, but God is not impressed by those actions. He's not impressed when you work, do your work halfway when you are not being seen, but then you do it fully when you know you're being seen. You see, man-pleasers work to make people like them. They have no real interest in doing their work well. In Paul's day, man-pleasing slaves were only trying to make a favorable impression on their owners, but they were not being pleasing to God. The question here is, you may say to me, I'm not a slave. None of us are, right? Yes, that's true, but most of us answer to someone. Most of us have a boss, El Jefe. You're commanded to obey El Jefe. You you are to do so in fear and trembling with sincerity, without man-pleasing. You are to do so even if your boss doesn't doesn't deserve it. Today we have work at home more, more, right? Many of you work at home or have worked at home. You're, You're still called, even in that situation, to work as unto the Lord, fearing the Lord, not doing it for man-pleasing. I'm sure some of you have great work situations. Perhaps you work for a believing boss. And that's all the more reason to have the right attitude in your work. Yet some of you may have less than ideal workplaces. You're still called to have the right attitude of pleasing the Lord. Now, this leads us to our second directives. Directive. You are to realize you are slaves of a heavenly master. You are slaves of a heavenly master. Look at your text. It says, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now, you may notice that Paul assumes the Ephesian believers here to be slaves of Christ. My my outline says that we are to be slaves of Christ. In other words, we are to behave in a way that, that shows that we are actually slaves of Christ. I mean, we are, if we know Him, if we're in Him, we are His slaves. And we need to act in that way. Ephesians 1.7 says that we were bought back from slavery to sin. In, in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. The word redemption means that we've been purchased with a price. 
In this case, the price of our redemption from sin was the shed blood of Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. And when Jesus saved us, He brought, bought us back from enslavement to sin. We are now then slaves of Christ. And in Romans 6.22, Paul says that we've been freed from sin and enslaved to God. Brethren, we, we should rejoice in this truth. We've been made alive in Christ. We've been raised up and seated in the heavenlies in Christ. And let me tell you, that truth should mark everything we do. Everything we do. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul implored the church to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. This command extends not only inside your home and, or in the church, it extends to the marketplace as well. The workplace. In, in the words of John Calvin, there, there is no work, however vile or sordid, that does not glisten before God, end quote. So, in doing so, and being slaves of Christ, we then are representing the Father's will. Uh, we are to represent the Father's will in the, in the workplace. And you ask, how are we to do that? Well, we are to do the, do the Father's will, that is. And look at your text. But as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. If we're going to do the Father's will, then we must understand His will. Back in Ephesians 1.9, Paul wrote that he made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention which He purposed in Christ. Ultimately, God has made known to us His intention to sum up all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. We also learn from Ephesians 1.11 that God works all things after the counsel of His will. In other, in other words, He uses everything, including our circumstances, to bring, to bring to pass His will. As believers then, as believers, we uniquely understand the greatness of what God is doing. Therefore, since we understand the greatness of what He's doing, when we look at this world, our jobs included... We look at it through what? Through the lens of eternity. Through the lens of what God is doing in this world. And, and that knowledge then should uniquely shape our behavior in the workplace. R.C. Sproul says, For a work to be considered good, it must not only conform outwardly to the law of God, but it must be motivated inward, inwardly by a sincere love for God. End quote. We, we love God because we understand His goodness. And we recognize what He is doing. We recognize His will, and, and therefore we work according to His will. We, we recognize what He, what he is, intends for our future in eternity. Paul, Paul sums this up in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says, for, a moment, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Church, I doubt you're suffering greatly in your job. Most of us have good jobs with good bosses. Most companies have figured out that you can't treat employees badly and expect to be successful. Some of you may have bosses who are not the greatest, but I know for a fact that you're not being physically beaten by them. I'm fairly certain of that. Even if, even if you have a bad work situation, God calls you to recognize that He is your ultimate master. He wants you to understand His will, and He wants you to work accordingly. 
And He wants you to render service with goodwill. Render service with goodwill. Look at your text. In verse 7, chapter 6, verse 7, with goodwill render service as to the Lord, not to men. See, in this verse, Paul sums up his teaching. As slaves or employees, we are to do our work with goodwill as we would if we were specifically working for the Lord. If He was specifically standing before us as our boss, we ought to do the same thing even though He's not. And that's true whether your boss is a believer or not. Can you imagine working in a place where everyone had that attitude? There's something called the Pareto Principle. It's called the 80-20 rule. And for example, the rule states that 80% of the wealth of a society is held by 20% of its population. It also states that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. It even says that 80% of that work is done by 20% of the high performers and so forth and so on. This has been observed across cultures. We see this even in churches. 20% of the people in churches do most of the service, do they not? I would argue that this is true because we live in a fallen world. Because people are sinful. It won't change until Christ returns. Yet as Christians, living in a fallen world, we're called to a higher purpose. We're called to do our work as unto the Lord, even though He's not physically present. He's here, but He's not physically here. He's in your workplace, but He's not physically in your workplace. We are To do so, we are to to work as under the Lord in our homes, in our churches, and in our workplaces. And according to Paul, we have the power of God working within us to, uh, to, to allow us to do so. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, temptations which accompany the work day will be conquered on the basis of the morning breakthrough to God. Decisions demanded by work become easier and simpler where they are made not in the fear of men but only in the sight of God. He wants to give us today the power which we need for our work. End quote. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? When you go to work, do you believe that He wants to give you the power to be able to do your work as unto the Lord, to be pleasing to Him? Brethren, God calls you to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to Him. He calls you not to be conformed to this world, he, he, he calls you not to do your work like your unbelieving co-workers. Your work is, a, is actually a form of worship before God. And when you do your work as under the Lord, you will realize the return. You will realize the return. Look at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does... This he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Beloved, this, this verse is pretty straightforward. Ultimately, Christ is our reward. Ultimately, Christ is our reward. And, he, and Christ calls for us to, to persevere, does he not? And if we persevere, James tells us, in James 1.12, I've got to get to the right, the right place. In James 1.12, 
James says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You see, we're not working, we're not doing good in a, in a vacuum. God sees what we do. Whether your boss sees it or not, whether your boss appreciates you or not, whether your company pays you or not, it doesn't matter. God sees what you do. And God will reward us for a job well done. We may not, you may not receive earthly rewards. You may not receive the praise that you're desiring. You may not see a raise like you want. You may not make the money you want. But you have to understand those things are temporal. They're fleeting. But you, if you obey the Lord, if you obey your earthly masters as He's commanding, you will reap the heavenly rewards. Heavenly rewards which are not temporal. They're eternal rewards. Eternal rewards. Brethren, some of you put too much stock in your work. Therefore, you make an idol out of your work. An idol that you put above God. That's wrong as well. You work hard, you are to work hard because of your reverential love for God. Some of you put your work above your family. Again, that is sinful. You are to work hard to please God and to support your family. It's a, it's a means to an end. No job is worth losing your family. Some of you find your purpose solely in your work. I would argue that your work, again, is the means by which you earn a living to invest in the kingdom. In the words of our Lord, if you don't believe me, Luke 69, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. You know what that is? It's the wages you earn. It's the wages you earn. It's the, it's the money you make in an unrighteous world. He, he, says, he says, make friends for yourselves by, by this, with this wealth, so that when it fails, and it will fail... I don't care how big, big your bank account is. Never seen a, never seen a uh, armored car behind a hearse. I mean, maybe, maybe somebody would try it. That's what the, like, the Egyptians were buried with all their stuff. But the British came and got it later. And it, it's gone. It's in museums all over the world. But he says, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. The point is, is that <clears throat> your wealth needs to be used for kingdom purposes, for the right reasons. We are to give to the advance of the kingdom. Now, some of you may think that your work is meaningless. means nothing. Yet, no matter what you do, from plumbing to welding, to being a soldier, to being a lawyer, to being an engineer to being a doctor, it doesn't matter what you do in this world, your work is valuable. Hard stop. Doesn't matter. Your work is valuable. That is, unless it's sinful. All you mothers, all you mothers, you have the most critical job in the world. 
You're tasked to care for your children and to lead them to Christ. Fathers, you are expected to bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That is, that is the greatest work you can do. But I can tell you, your work is never meaningless. Never meaningless. Martin Luther has said, what you do in your house is worth as much as, what you, as you did, is, is worth as much as if you did it up in heaven for our Lord God. We should accustom ourselves to think of our position and work as sacred and well-pleasing to God, not on account of the position and work, but on account of the word and faith from which the obedience and the work flow. End quote. Some of you dislike your job and complain about it. You complain about what your boss asks you to do. Brethren, just to cut it straight, every one of us in here are compensated to do, to do enough to do what we're asked without complaint. Don't make it your habit to complain. Don't make it your habit to complain. Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That is, unless you're asked to sin, then you need to refuse and obey God. Church, we must work, do our work to please God. In the words of Thomas Aquinas, to live well is to work well, to show a good activity, end quote. May we as a church live well and work well. Now, you may be hearing these words, and they don't make much sense to you. You live in a world that uh, it's no big deal to complain about your boss. It's, it's expected to complain about your work. Uh, why, would we, why would we do these things? Why are we making such a big deal out of our work? Friend, have you considered that you may not be a believer in the Lord Jesus? Here in uh, the buckle of the Bible belt, if you will, Everyone thinks that they were born a Christian. But I'm here to tell you that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Turn to, to the Lord Jesus. He beckons you to come. I was just talking to someone about Sundays in, in homes where no one goes to church. I remember growing up in a home such as that. And he reminded me of the Sunday blues. Have any of you had the Sunday blues? You know why the Sunday blues happen? I think God expects us to rest on Sunday so that we would have time to contemplate life. And ultimately, ultimately, as we contemplate life, you begin to feel that emptiness if you don't have Christ. Friend, that emptiness you feel will never be filled with leisure or with money or with cars or with houses. Your wealth will never fill that void. And your work won't either. And your work won't either. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. He beckons you. He beckons you to count the cost, as we read earlier. To take up your cross and follow Him. To give your life to Him. He beckons you to turn to Him heard anything today that the Lord has laid on your heart 
just ask that you come talk to me or to one of the other men, Vey, and just let us know so we can pray for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. for this um, time considering your word. May we as a people live to please you. May we work to please you and you alone. May we not be man-pleasers. May we not work by way of eye service, but may we work in the sincerity of our heart, working for you and you alone, as we obey our earthly masters. Pray these things in Christ's name, amen.